Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. Today we're going to be talking about two new Netflix films, Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story and Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Welcome to Film Club. Netflix has been sort of tentatively working towards uh, awards glory these past few years. Roma was a huge win for them. And today we're talking about two films that I think are going to be big awards contenders this year. First is Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, which is a film about divorce that opens with a couple talking about what they love about each other, yeah. which I think is a really important thing about this film. It's not a hateful movie. There's no hate. Yeah. There's no really, like, bad guy. There's, there's like, if you try to describe why they broke up. It's very complicated, and it does have compassion for all sides of the story, I think. Although, from my perspective, I felt like in the latter half, you start to identify a little bit more with Adam Driver's character in that, you know, you really get into the meat of his emotional issues that predicated mm -hmm. the divorce is dramatized in the movie, but Scarlett Johansson's is more stated than felt. I, mm. I think, but you have a theory on why that is. To give some background on what the film is, mm -hmm. uh, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson play spouses who are at an impasse. Yes. They're getting a divorce. I, by the way, think that that opening passage is one of the most beautiful things Bombach's ever staged. It's so, it really, it's very moving, Yeah, honestly. we just see the whole, we almost like see the whole scope of their marriage mm -hmm. and their parenthood, and it just gives us that in this, in this beautifully cut montage, and then he pulls the rug out from under us. Yeah. It's these statements they're reading each, to each other because they're they're, they're separating and they're getting a divorce. Um, they're in couples therapy, right? And it's probably their last appointment because yeah. they're they can't they cannot come to a reconciliation. They right. just can't. The two of them uh, work together in a theater company in New York. Mm -hmm. He's this acclaimed director of avant-garde plays mm -hmm. in, in in Brooklyn, and uh, she is uh, the the star of the troupe, of, of his theater troupe. She was formerly a Hollywood actor and then uh, met him. They fell in love. They moved to New York. Yeah. She is going back to Los Angeles to shoot a pilot and has always wanted to go back to L.A. Um, her family is out there in California, and the film becomes about this conflict between them and about the issue of custody because mm -hmm. they have a young son and where they're going to live. He wants to stay in New York. She wants to stay in Los Angeles. Not the first film Bombuck's made about divorce. Right. I feel like one of his early critical hits was The Squid and the Whale, um, which was loosely autobiographical about his parents divorcing. And that film, I think, was pretty caustic in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think that sort of started a whole period for him of these kind of caustic character studies where it was like, exactly how harsh can he get in his mm -hmm. observations about human behavior sure. and not lose us? Yeah. You know? um, I'm moved by the way that this film, as you said, is a little bit more generous. Um, it is. And this movie really breaks down why it's complicated yeah. and what all the moving parts are and you truly feel you understand that it that this sort of wistful sadness of well it's just not going to work out but wouldn't it be nice if it did yeah totally. you know that that feeling of of regret is in there and you do feel like that on some level they do still love each other they there's just irreconcilable differences i think it's kind of the stakes of the movie in some respects mm -hmm. is how will these two come out the other side of this mm -hmm. you know right um, the idea of them getting back together is never it's seriously not on the floated. Table. it's not on never. the table yeah. after the beginning we understand that this is a marriage that's not going to work mm -hmm. so the stakes become what is this relationship going to be going forward because mm -hmm. as two people who have a child too, it's important 
the nature of that relationship becomes important. It becomes important for the kid's future and their own. You had said that you think that the perspective shifts to him. A, a little bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that the film is ungenerous towards mm -hmm. Scarlett Johansson's character. Basically, she what she says in the film is that she feels like she lost herself mm -hmm. in this relationship, that she just became, you know, his actress instead of herself. And she, that's sort of stated, but um, you don't, I guess you see, the only way that it really shows her coming back to herself is showing her reconnecting with her family, which I suppose is how they um, they sort of show that in the film, but it's more extroverted and Adam Driver's, uh, her husband's, you know, journey towards realizing like, yeah, maybe I was kind of a, maybe I was being selfish. Maybe I did kind of drive her away by being selfish. That's more introspective. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong that it becomes more about him in the center of the film. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a, pro I think for one, that's a product of the fact that this movie is also very, I think, more loosely autobiographical than Squid and the Whale, certainly, mm -hmm. which was very much about his parents' split. Yeah. I think this, there are elements of his own divorce that have been poured into it, but I think as, as, as a filmmaker who's been through a divorce, as a man who's been through a divorce, I think he maybe can't just kind of can't help but gravitate towards oh, his sure. perspective. Yeah, you know? no. And like, he probably understands Driver's character a lot more than he understands Johansson's in yeah, some respects. absolutely. But I do think it's doing something tricky in that I think a large portion of the middle of this movie is from, dri from Driver's perspective. Uh -huh. But I think it's also about showing the audience step by step, very slowly, the degree to, uh, to which he is maybe more responsible for the death of this marriage than she mm. is. And I don't know how much of it is him realizing it, but I do think there is a lot of the audience coming to terms with just how selfish this person is. And I, I think there, uh, when he does that big Sondheim number towards the end of the film, yeah. you know, a lot of people have talked about his performance of, uh, I'm not really a Sondheim person, so I'm not familiar with the song. But Being alive. Yeah. yeah. And that moment, I felt, is when the movie sort of pivoted again. Mm -hmm. After that moment, and out of the space where it was coming uh, specifically from his point of view. And I want to clarify, that's not like a knock on the movie. I don't think it's bad. Like, obviously, it was written by a guy, so mm -hmm. it will naturally sort of, like, bend a little bit more towards that way. And if I think a woman had written it, it would have bended a little bit more towards the, the woman's perspective on the situation. It's not a negative. It's just... An observation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I think what's uh, one of the things I find really interesting about this film is that it becomes, at a certain point, it becomes almost a procedural about yes. getting divorced. I'll say this. You you talked about his causticness, mm -hmm. and um, I think this movie does have a lot of ire towards uh, the divorce industrial complex and towards sure. divorce lawyers, because originally, at the beginning of the film, both parties say, I don't want to get money involved in this. I don't want to grow to hate you. I don't want lawyers. I just want to get this done as simply as possible, and that does not happen. No, it all. doesn't. The film ends up turning into this kind of uh, almost this like Kafka-esque labyrinth of yes. bureaucracy that, yeah. that these characters get into. Uh, little things like eventually Driver's character hires a lawyer played by Alan Alda, mm -hmm. and who's just, who is? I mean, he's very sweet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, he's in. He's his character is kind of in over his head. In this he, situation. Absolutely, he is. Yeah. He's not prepared. Uh, yeah, because Johansson's character hires a lawyer played by Laura Dern, who is like a shark. She's and, she's an LA shark though. She's yes. like a shark with crystals and kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Aldous character basically says, "Well, you have to establish. You, you you should get a place out here in Los Angeles mm -hmm. because if you get a place out here, it shows that you care about your kid. Right? Because that's going to come up during during the proceedings." 
But that turns into this thing where once he's done that, he's making a case for the other side that they're a Los Angeles family. Exactly. So those kind of those little predicaments are all over the middle of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think a lot of Bombach is such an astute observer of human behavior mm-hmm. and of like human foibles. And in this case, I think that that uh, that quality about his work is applied to the nuances of the legal system mm-hmm. and the nuances and the the tiny little frustrations that come. Uh, with getting divorced in this way. Yeah, and that aspect of the film, like we were talking about, the middle is when things get very messy and acrimonious. But uh, one thing I liked about this film is that it starts from a place of love, their, their previous love, their marriage, and then all the mess. And then towards the end... It kind of comes back to a place of love and coming out the other side and finding a future. The next film uh, that we're going to talk about is The Irishman, Netflix's other big awards contender for the year, Martin Scorsese. After watching it, I thought it has some parallels to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in that they are both films from well-established filmmakers who are aging, kind of reconciling their own image as a filmmaker with their impending like irrelevance or death. Mm-hmm. Although I would say that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is very much a film made by a filmmaker who is uh, maybe going through a midlife crisis or right, who is sure. facing the middle of his life. Right, sure. Scorsese's older, and I think that this is very much a, an old man's movie. Mm-hmm. Now, that means something different with Scorsese than it does with some filmmakers. There sure. are filmmakers who—it's funny that you mentioned Tarantino, because Tarantino has always said he's going to quit after what, 10 films. Yeah, 10. And, and his thing has always been, I don't want to be an old man filmmaker. He right. said that there's a certain point in a filmmaker's career when their work gets creaky, when they lose it, you know, they're like out of their prime, and and he sees this great sadness in watching a filmmaker basically sure. decline. Well, some, some, some don't have, you know— the most glorious. Well, that's endings. absolutely true. There are great you know? filmmakers who have had bad last acts. Right. Say. Scorsese's not one of them, though. No. Uh, well, you know, he's he's not concerned about his place in the canon. It's very well established. You know. Right. Well, he, he is, is kept... in no danger of being forgotten. Right. That's true. And uh, but I also think that he's not somebody who has rested on his laurels yes. over the year. Mm-hmm. I think he's had a brilliant decade for movie making and an interesting one. Mm-hmm. But The Irishman feels very much like a film like a film uh, where it, this. This aging director is reckoning with the legacy that he's leaving behind, yeah. and and with the kind of stories he's been he's been leaving behind. Yeah, that's a great point because I mean, obviously Scorsese does so much more than mob movies, but he's best known for mob movies, mm-hmm. and I do think there is a lot of in this film sort of um, deconstructing. Uh, both the aftermath of what all of this mob activity, how it turns out for the people in real life, and for the way that he's depicted it in films. Like, there's a little touch in this film that I found very of a piece with this, where they'll show, uh, you know, whenever they introduce new characters, they'll put their name up on the screen, and then how they died. You'll have a group of five guys, and every single one of them dies. It shows how pointless the whole thing is. They're, they're all headed yep. for, the, for, the, for the cemetery. Yeah, no one's you going know? to win. There are no winners in this game. Right. Yeah. Well, in the film, open with a Scorsese signature, mm-hmm. which is a long steady cam shot through yeah. a single environment. It's very reminiscent of the Copacabana scene yes. in Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. But in this, we're, we're traveling through an elderly care facility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the camera kind of snakes around. We're seeing people, we're, we're seeing uh, elderly people being cared for. And then it lands on our main character, Frank Shireen, played by Robert De Niro, mm-hmm. looking, I would say, in that first moment where we see him looking older. And I think he's ever looked on screen. Yeah. Let's talk about the de-aging technology for a minute. Because there was a lot of, uh, you know, to do about that. I found the de-aged scenes not 
horribly distracting, but their skin looked, a, it was slightly uncanny valley. Their skin just looked a little bit too smooth. There are moments when it looks weird. Yeah. So uh, the movie uh, takes place over half a century. Right. We follow and Shireen. And it's the same actors. Right. So De Niro plays uh, Frank Shireen, who is uh, a truck driver who ends up moonlighting as basically a, a hired killer for the mafia. Mm-hmm. So the film follows him over half a century, essentially, and we see him as early as his 30s. Now De Niro is... Not in his 30s. No. no. <laughs> He's an older man than that at this point. So the film uses de-aging technology, mm-hmm. uses something similar to what the Marvel movies have used. And Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars as well. Um, All the yes. big blockbusters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's unnerving a little when you see it. It doesn't look exactly right. I, I don't know if yeah. that's the technology isn't just isn't there yet. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's realistic enough that it didn't take me out of the scene, but I noticed it. You know what I mean? But I, I actually think it served a, a thematic function in this film as well. I think the movie is very much about somebody looking back on their life ah. and finding it impossible maybe to remember what it was like to be young. Oh, and yeah, and maybe remembering things a little bit yes. different than they actually were. Of course. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's a really interesting uh, perspective on the whole thing. Yeah, and one of the actors who, you know, uh, is in the movie throughout the whole 50 years is Joe Pesci mm-hmm. making his return to Martin Scorsese movies, and he's also going to make another album, so get excited. <laughs> uh, what do you think about Pesci's role in this film and how it fits into Scorsese, his Filmography with Scorsese. Well, I thought it was fascinating because um, Pesci over the years in Scorsese films has been this kind of agent of chaos. Right. You know, he's always playing the violent hothead in Raging Bull, in Goodfellas, in Casino. He's playing characters who uh, sort of barrel into every scene Mm -hmm. like a bull in a china shop, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is so totally different from that. He's playing this aging mob boss, basically, Mm -hmm. who takes De Niro under his wing. Uh, It's also very cute that he calls De Niro kid throughout. Yeah. Late 70s De Niro gets to be kid in this movie, which is very funny. He is so controlled in this film. He's never, we never see him lose his temper over the course of this film, which um, I think is a reflection of, uh, I think that's Scorsese letting us know that even Joe Pesci, this character used to be this sort of ball of mad energy in his films, is Mm -hmm. older now. He wants us, even when he's supposed to look younger through the technology, we're supposed to see his age. Right. And it's fascinating to see Pesci uh, rein it in so much and to see him as this figure, almost this voice of reason within the mob empire, in so much as there can be a voice of reason. Um, A lot of the time he's the one who, uh, he. what's very scary though is that he will, in a very different way than his characters in earlier Scorsese films, there are moments when he will step up and will say, cause some violence. Uh, yes, <laughs> for sure. But not usually just by issuing an order or something. Paint some houses. Yes, exactly. And part of this overall deconstruction and uh, myth busting, one could say, about you know mobsters and the mob genre is the character Anna Paquin as De Niro's daughter, which is a mostly wordless role that has gotten a little bit, not quite as much as uh, you know the depiction of Sharon Tate, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to bring it back around to that. But I push back against that idea overall. I find it a very reductive way of uh, viewing a performance, breaking it down to lines. Mm -hmm. I think that Paquin's silence is really powerful Mm -hmm. in this film. I think it says a lot that in the pursuit of these uh, this mob activity that, as the film shows, just is pointless and just leads to nothing but death. He ends up destroying his relationship with his family, which is something that could endure longer than the business. And he's not going to reconcile with her before 
he dies. Right. Which is very tragic in a way, but he also makes his own bed there, I think. For sure. I think that uh, it feeds into what this movie is ultimately doing mm -hmm. and uh, its attitude about mob movies in general and uh, and about this kind of life. I mean, Scorsese in the past has been accused of romanticizing the mobster life. I, I think that's, that is a misunderstanding of what those earlier films sure. do, but this one doesn't want any confusion on the matter. No, not at all. <laughs> you know, so the, the sort of back end of The Irishman is all about what your life is going to look like at the end if this is how you've spent it. When everyone else is dead. Everyone else is either dead or hates you. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a pretty picture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that cheerful note, that's all we've got for you this week on Film Club. And we have another podcast we'd love for you to check out uh, from the AV Club. It's called Dial In For Maple, all about Riverdale. But no matter how you join us, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks. <laughs>